This editorially independent podcast is supported by Visit Flanders. This year, Duval Morkath celebrates his 150th anniversary, and the occasion is being marked with the release of a new beer. Duval 6.66 follows Duval Green, Duval Single, Duval on Tap, Duval Triple Hop, and Duval Barrel Aged. But as these line extensions mount up, the original remains totemic of the brewery. What has been behind the success of the mother beer? Just how did Duval become so iconic? I'm Brendan Kearney, and you're listening to the Belgian Smack Podcast. Part 1 Albert So Duval was originally launched in 1923 as Victory Ale at a time when Brauerei Mortgat was being led by Albert Mortgat and his brother Victor Mortgat. Their father, Jan Leonard Mortgat, had started the farm brewery in the village of Braindonk in 1871. That's where the Duval Mortgat brewery still is to this day. Now the foundation for Duval's iconic status is the origin story of its yeast. One represented in Duval Morgat's marketing literature as an odyssey. You know, it's like unique and epic. Unlike other family breweries who may have secured strains from yeast banks at Belgian universities, it's claimed by Duval Morgat that Albert Morgat travelled to Scotland to source a yeast for use in his victory ale that he believed to be special or particularly desirable. A comic strip published by Duval Morcat purports to tell the story of that journey. In the comic strip, Albert is seen travelling with an aluminium milk can in which the yeast was supposedly transported from William McEwen's Fountain Brewery in Edinburgh. A while back, I visited the brewery and I had a chat with Nicolas Sunen, who at the time was the sommelier at Duval as well as one of its sales managers. Um, what happened is that during the First World War, 1418, you had a lot of English soldiers fighting here in West, uh, in Ypres, West Flanders, um, at, uh, in West Hook against the Germans. And uh, they were helping us out. Uh, but what they also did is they brought their beer, their English beer from England yeah. to here. And um, at that time, you, you have to understand that in Belgium we used to drink uh, uh, low alcoholic beers. Okay. Compared to England where they had 
ales and 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 that type of beers, so mo- mostly ales, with uh, a little bit more alcohol. Mm-hmm. Still not as much as we brew today, but let's say uh, here in Belgium we had beer between two and four percent alcohol. Okay. So it oh, was. Holy yeah, mostly uh, no. Uh, let's say almost only uh, top fermented yes and that that gave ideas to our brewers and the second generation actually those two guys you see here so the one in the middle is the the founder of the brewery the first generation Jan Leonard Mortgat and then you had Albert and Victor I don't know which which one is which one but doesn't matter one of both uh, was more uh, the brewer type Yeah. Technical. The other one was more commercial, okay. and um, and uh, I think it, I believe it was Albert who um, who went on a quest for uh, a strong beer yeast that could brew a beer with higher alcohol percentage. Went to Scotland. Mm-hmm. No, he went to England first. Okay. He ended up in Scotland finally, where uh, he. I wonder what happened that trip. A lot of people wonder. <laughs> they, they have a lot of stories also, uh, and 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 I mean, uh, there even uh, is a comic book which explains the whole story. Okay. So the legend says that he he found his brewery. And okay. I I talked with a lot of people about this. Um, apparently, it was the McEwen's brewery in Scotland, yes, which I've doesn't that, yeah. doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Uh, and there he found uh, he found I don't know how did he steal it or did he buy it or did he mm-hmm. did he receive it the yeast I don't know But anyway uh, uh, he had the yeast strain and he brought it back in a in a milk container mm-hmm. yeah back on a ship to here and and it's that yeast that we still use until uh, the day of today so that when they came back would be in uh, 1921 or something then it took uh, some time I, that's not too clear to me exact the exact years yeah. what I, i have found is that uh, 1923 was the official uh, date when it was launched okay. uh, First, under the name of um, uh, Victory, Victory Ale, indeed. Which would have been a reference to World War One. Exactly. And the Allies' victory over the Germans. Exactly. You had two things: uh, ale coming from the English culture, victory, of course, the victory of the Allies on the Germans. Mm-hmm. So that was the original name. So it was actually quite a. Um, um, well, I don't know how much of a collaboration it was because, as you say, you don't know how he got the. But it was kind of also a mark of respect to the, the definitely. Family. That's for sure. Yeah. That's for sure. I don't know how open the culture was at that time to just give a yeast strain or sure, sure. maybe he had contacts there. But I know that he first went to England, so it wasn't his target to go to Scotland directly. Yeah. But since he didn't have any success in England, he went to Scotland, and maybe that he knew the the owners of the brewery. That's also possible. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. I mean, that's exact story. I I couldn't. Yeah. Verify. Sure. <laughs> okay, so Nicolas wasn't in a position to verify, but I've read some pretty niche literature about the history of Belgian beer in which it's mentioned that the Duval yeast originally came from a different brewery and that it was sourced through 
John Martin, who ran a beer import business in Belgium at the time. John Martin's grandson, Anthony Martin, still has that import business over in Antwerp, as well as owning a bunch of Belgian breweries like Dimmermans, Waterloo and Bourgogne de Flanders. The text that I'm talking about is called From William of Orange to Frank of Lembake, From Small Beer to Special Beer. It took a bit of work to get it. The author of that text is Chris Bauerarts, who is the co-founder of Brasserie d'Achouf, which is now a part of the Duva Mortgard group of breweries, and the co-creator of the beer Schuf. His sources for the text included many brewers from a previous generation, as well as history buffs like Paul Van Aste and Frank Bone, Yannick Bus and Robert Putman. Hello. Hello. Uh, good afternoon, Chris. It's Brendan Kearney here. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, yes. how, 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 do you have a few minutes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll take some minutes for you. Yes. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you. So I tracked down Chris Bauerarts and I gave him a call to ask about the yeast. Um, you see, for the, for the, the, the document that you sent me, the, the, the text that you wrote, um, with the, with, with the yeah. help of the other guys, um, there's some stuff in there that I didn't know, which is really interesting. Um, the the whole stuff about John Martin and uh, like I I, yeah. I I understood that you know they were coming in into the, the port of Antwerp and they brought Guinness yes, in and they yes. brought that was a very important part of yeah those types of beers coming into Belgium. But what what I didn't realize was that the the relationship between Albert Burkhardt to get the yeast from Scotland also yeah. came through John Martin. I'm sure of that. Because I, 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 I don't have that on paper, but you know, you know the beer world. I, I did interview of Anthony Martin. I interviewed him for a beer fashion magazine. Yeah. And I have a question, eh, Michael Jackson, PX Salis, Objective Beer Brewers, they are on the baseline, on the basis of the revival of Belgian special beer, of Belgian craft beer. That's one of the questions. And then, when I asked the question to Anthony Martin, he said, no, no, not these three guys are on the bed, but my grandfather is on the... Okay, who, who, what, what, what is he telling now? And then he told the story of his grandfather, who, 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 by, who he moved from England somewhere to Antwerp, uh-huh. and with a contract as shipshandler. That was his aim, he was to start a job as shipshandler in Antwerp, but when he arrived in Antwerp, he saw something that he never see, have seen in his, his life. He saw uh, steamships. And that was a problem for him because uh, he was expecting uh, sail ships who are uh, weeks and weeks underway to, from Antwerp to New York. So they had to load more, more stuff yeah. in the ship. And, uh, and the sail ship, okay, uh, a steamship. Maybe in 10 days a steamship is, is in New York. Eh? Yeah. So his business plan was not good, so good anymore. So he decided to import beverages or drinks from England to, to, to the continent, to Antwerp. So Schweppes tonic, uh, other stuff, the Guinness stuff, and uh, also the beer from William Younger Brewery. 
I'm sure of that, eh? William Younger, uh, I don't have that on paper, but it's William Younger's. And I know that uh, you, I can, you can do research on internet of that, eh? but uh, William Younger's marched with uh, Scottish breweries, uh, and, uh, no, with, uh, wait, eh? you have William Younger's, and I do they claim, they say it's another brewer. It's yeah, another they, they say brewer. it's McEwen's. Yes, yes, okay, okay. But they say it because they don't know better. They can say it, but in 1931, uh, McEwen's and uh, William Younger, they merged together, and they founded Scottish breweries. Okay. And later, later on, Scottish breweries, they merged with Newcastle Brewery, and that became Scottish and Newcastle. Uh-huh. That you can find, and uh, but when you know how for the hell in 1922, 23, 24, how for the hell Albert Market no uh, the brewery. Uh, hey, no, I know better William Younger than 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 the other. Uh, you say the name. Just, uh, okay. For what reason should Albert Market no Mac? McEwen's in yeah, I mean, it, has to, it, has to be, it has to be through a connection like the one with the uh, with Yes, of course. Yeah. And what happened? What happened with brew? I don't explain you. I have to explain you the world of brewers. It's a very funny world, and the, the brewers come together. So I guess that in 1926 or 24 or 25, uh, the brewers in the province of Antwerp they came together. Albert Bergschat, uh John Martins, and also other brewers. They, they discussed together, and then no one said, well, you should pick up yeast, I, 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 I can imagine, he, he asked to, to John Martin, hey, can you bring me in contact with your brewery uh, that you import from Scotland, and that, that was uh, William Younger. So do, do you think it, that it, Albert Mordecai went to Scotland, or do you think it was just brought over by John Martin? No, 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 I, I, I received a cartoon from Michel Mordecai, uh, a, a strip about the Murdoch story, and there are some. Uh, I, can, I can make a photo to you for that. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, to you for no about that for you. Uh, with Albert Murdoch taking the ship, the, the ship to England with a miller can. So it's certainly true. Another Belgian brewer. I, I know that in my in my work also uh, Jules Graat from. Uh, the brewery who brewed left in the Pestenvieux went also to, to Scotland. Yeah, so I also saw that in your text. So are you are you suggesting that that same yeast that William Younger stroked well, McEwen's yeast? Well, that, that I found out, if, if you dig on the internet, if people are really interested, I found out that, uh, that the brewers of Edinburgh uh, were very social and they help each other. And if one brewer needed yeast, okay, come pick up the yeast. So uh, at, the, at the end, it was a blend of the same yeast over all uh, Edinburgh. So, but what you're what you're suggesting there is that the yeast for Vuitton and Leffe at that time would have been the yeah. same yeast used for what is now Duvel. The same origin, but what happens at Duvel and probably at Leffe, it was a blend of yeah, maybe thousand different yeast strains <coughs> or yeast cell. And at, and at Bruegel, they selected, Professor de Klerk selected one yeast cell, and probably at Vieux another yeast cell was selected. 
Yeah. Makes sense. Yes. Because so they, they, kind of, they kind of evolved in their own directions over time. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Also, yes, yes, yes. But, but uh, at the start, yes. Uh, and because you hear that the older brothers, you hear the story that uh, <coughs> I know, but he passed away. That brother, the the heat brother of uh, of Bref in the past. Uh, he, he told me the story of Jules Graves. That Jules Graves told him, hey, I pick up the yeast in, uh, in Scotland. So I, I, I thought that, but okay. The brother who told that to me, he was young when Jules Graves was retired, and he told him that. But the brother who told that to me, he passed away two years ago also. Yeah, yeah. That, that's, that's the... The sad and fact of knowing older brothers, so I can just put it on the paper and tell the people, uh, yeah, believe what they tell to me. Yeah? And I mean, is there, yeah. is there any indication that the the yeast was, I mean, it was offered freely. It wasn't that it was somehow secretly brought to Belgium. It was it was something that this brewery gave out freely, right, or, or sold. In, in those times, it was certainly not a clean yeast, if you see the... Yeah, the can, a milk, a milk can in uh, in aluminium. You can't make that sterilize it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, yeah that, that, that whole period in Belgian beer is interesting because it's kind of a big change and in it's influence from other countries yeah. in England and, and and Germany and like I mean a lot happened between World War One and World War Two as as you've yeah. kind of written in your document. One of the things I'm also interested in is you, you mentioned this kind of liberation beer. Which which was a name for the, the PLLs around that time? No, 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 no. But uh, the, you have to you must imagine after the first war. Okay, yeah. I think uh, for the Belgians, the Belgians, what do they want to drink? German pilsner just after the first war of an English style of beer. So to drink the the beer style of the Liberator. You understand? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's what I mean. Ah. Not, uh, I, I think I, I put some, uh, there is a label with Liberator. Uh, be, uh, on, on yeah, yeah, I see it. It's, uh, it says uh, Brasserie La Noire, I think. Yes, okay. Nenen, that's in it, yeah. So, so, okay, so what you're uh, saying is that actually the, the attraction to the English Yales was obviously because they were coming in thanks, Belgium, thanks first of all, but second of all, thank because you. they were the... The, the kind of the, the, the freeing, yeah, the liberating. Yeah, yeah, it was the, 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 really the beer of the liberator. Eh? And so was, I was believe that also part of the reason that Duval was originally named Victory Ale? Yeah, yeah. But there are two reasons, and I don't know which is the real one, uh, but I believe also with the liberator ale in mind, so Victory Ale, that's also possible, but at those times you had two brothers, two brothers, Victor Moortgat and Albert Moortgat. <coughs> and in Victory Ale, you have Victor and Albert in the, in the, in the name. Yeah, V-A. Yeah. There are, there are two, two reasons for that. But yeah. which is the right one, uh, I don't know. Yeah. Okay, so it's, it's not definitively clear how Albert Moortgat secured the yeast. It's also been suggested by journalist Katrien Bruyland in her reporting that Albert Mortgat didn't travel at all, but rather harvested the yeast from a bottle of William Younger's in Belgium with the help of a world-renowned yeast expert called Professor Bjorch. But all these conflicting stories only feed into the mythology around Duval's original strain, 
compared to the perhaps more prosaic provenance of the house strains of other family breweries. What is clear is that Victory Ale would have tasted totally different to what beer drinkers now know as Duval. Today's Duval is a clean, highly carbonated ale of 8.5% ABV with sas-sas and styrian goldings hop aromas of white pepper and like freshly cut grass and it's flavours of biscuit dough, I guess honey, some citrus peel and dried herbs and in the finish it's like a dry kind of medium bitter finish. Back then it would have probably been closer to a Belgian scotch ale than to the beer style modern day Duval would come to define, Belgian golden strong ale. During a tasting at the brewery in the 1920s, a local shoemaker named Van de Wauer is said by Duvel Murka to have exclaimed that the beer was Nanacht in Duvel, in the region's dialect, a real devil. Now whether that's true or not, the Murkats rechristened the beer with a new name, endowing the product with a dangerous, naughty and alluring brand that helped build its iconic reputation. The future was looking bright for Blabere Murkat. But for the village of Braindonk, where the brewery is located, things were about to get darker. After the war, Braindonk had this uh, reputation of being, you know, one of the, the most uh, important symbols of the, the cruelty of the German uh, occupation. And of course, uh, Mordhat was the, the brewer of uh, an important brewery in, in Braindonk, and he was at the same time the mayor of Braindonk uh, during the war. Uh, and had collaborated uh, with the Germans, paid the price for that uh, after the war. So this is Patrick Nefour. He's the head of documentation at Belgium's War Heritage Institute and the author of the book Braindonk, 1945-1945, The Geschiedenis. In English, the book might be titled Braindonk, 1940-1945, The History. Less than four kilometres from Duvel Murkatz brewery lies Fort Braindonk, a former Nazi prison camp used in the German occupation of Belgium during World War II. Today, it's a symbol of the cruelty of the Nazi regime, a place where thousands of imprisoned members of Belgium's Jewish community and resistance were starved, forced into meaningless labour and subjected to frequent physical punishment beatings by officers of the Flemish SS. A section of Fort Braindonk was used as a transit camp for Jews being sent to death camps in Eastern Europe, such as the Auschwitz concentration camp. Now, as part of the research he has done for his job and in producing his book, Patrick went through Belgian state files of those living in Braindonk at the time, one of whom was Albert Mortgat of Brauerei Mortgat. 
And you mentioned Albert Morkat uh, mm-hmm. was the mayor of Braindonk. Mm-hmm. I think he was mayor since 1921, all yeah, the way exactly. through the war. Yes. Now, the the you mentioned that he collaborated with the Nazis. Mm-hmm. Now, is that a historical fact, or is that something that has appeared in rumors across, you know, various media and you know, sort of rumor mills? Mm, no, no, that is uh, that is a fact. He was uh, mayor from 1921 onwards, and at first for the the Catholic Party. But then later on, during the interwar years, uh, he switched uh, allegiance and became a member of the Vlaams National Verbond, the Flemish National Union, who uh, went for uh, outright collaboration during the war. It was an anti-Belgian party and an authoritarian party. There was a more moderate wing, but there was also a more extreme wing, and it, the party uh, more and more moved towards fascism. And especially during the war, you can consider it as a fascist party, and it was an openly collaborationist uh, party who collaborated with the Germans. And uh, Mordhardt was a, a member of that party. So, and and did yes. he th- then, when you know, after the Second World War, and the Allies were able to sort of overturn mm-hmm. the German dominance? Yeah, what happened to Albert Mordhardt? Well, he, he didn't uh, flee in uh, 1941. He, he stayed on in, uh, in Braindonk and uh, he was uh, immediately uh, arrested. And then he uh, got uh, sentenced, sentenced in uh, 1946 by a military tribunal to four years uh, imprisonment. He uh, appealed uh, against that but in appeal, he got uh, five years. But he he uh, he never served, you know, these uh, five years because he got uh, liberated in 1947 already. But of course, after that, his uh, his uh, political career uh, was finished. Even if uh, later on he made use of a change in uh, the law. And uh, he, he appealed to have his uh, honor uh, restored. So, so he got that and that's kind of measure which, uh, so to say, uh, got him a, a clean slate, you know. So then officially you couldn't uh, hold this earlier uh, condemnation against him, this, uh, this four or the five years uh, imprisonment he he's had got. The, the nuance of the relationship with the Nazis. And it sounds from what you're telling me that, you know, it was a, a clear-cut collaboration, that there was shared nationalist values. And, you know, it wasn't just a case of Albert Murkat, you know, trying to protect the local Flemish people by sort of a pseudo-relationship with the Nazis. It was an actual Nazi collaboration. Well, he was... Uh seen by many people as uh, having uh, friendly dealings uh, with Germans. Of course, well, as you said, you have to to nuance a bit because as a mayor, of course, dealings with the Germans were somehow inevitable for all mayors. If they had been uh, Flemish VNV or uh, from from other parties. Uh, The camp commander, the uh, SS commander, Philip Schmidt, at first lived with Mordhat, but 
that also was not necessarily his fault because the German officers uh, were billeted and with, with uh, and of course the Germans uh, would never uh, choose uh, uh, poor people to stay with of course eh? they also they always uh, chose the the best uh, the best uh, home in uh, in town so part of these dealings were of course inevitable but people uh, Witnesses said after the war that he was uh, seen to have been, well, or certainly in the first years, as uh, being friendly with uh, German officers and uh, officers from the camp. Uh, he himself, of course, would uh, protest after the war and say that, uh, well, it was only necessary uh, administrative dealings uh, with them. But, uh, well... He got uh, sentenced to four years by the military tribunal, so uh, they didn't uh, believe him. He was uh, clearly seen as a collaborator. And uh, also, which didn't help him, some of his children were had also been seen during the war years as being friendly with uh, Germans. So uh, Belgian police found uh, pictures of uh, some of his daughters with German officers pictures uh, taking uh, during the war. He, uh, they found he had a subscription to uh, the weekly The National Socialist, uh, The National Socialist. His uh, sister-in-law, but, well, of course, he's, he didn't get on with his brother and with his sister-in-law, but she said to Belgian uh, uh, police after the war that uh, he had the portrait of the Führer in his uh, dining room uh, and so on. Uh, you know, uh, as a brewer, he owned most of the pubs in uh, in Braindonk, and uh, there was another witness who told him that he showed a map of North Africa um, during the war years uh, to uh, the people in the pub and said, "You, you see, uh, Rommel uh, is making." Uh, uh, is winning against the British. The British are nearly finished. Uh, the Germans are going to win. When the Germans uh, introduced uh, first voluntary and then uh, forced labor in, in Belgium in uh, 1942, uh, some people went to see Mordhat and uh, pleading with him, to, well, you're an important uh, man in the, in the town, uh, you have dealings with the Germans, please could you not uh, help me intervene with the Germans, use your influence uh, to help me not to go to, to Germany, yeah, to, to avoid... Uh, having to, to do this forced labor in Germany. And, well, in 1942, he said to them, well, no, no, it's it's much better in Germany than here. Uh, go work for Germany. You uh, should be proud to, to work in Germany. And then that changed in 1943, after Stalingrad and Kursk. For then he did intervene for some people in uh, from his town in, in Brainock, and he... he uh, effectively saved uh, some of them from uh, deportation uh, to the east and uh, his file you know that uh, uh, contains a lot of thank you papers from uh, 1943 onwards from uh, people who he had uh, whom he had saved uh, from deportation and he also intervened uh, in favor of the Leopold Dritterhuis, Foyer Leopold Tri, a charity who uh, uh, 
helped people in need uh, during the war uh, to, to deliver food parcels and so on and to plead with the Germans for better treatment uh, of uh, political prisoners and so on. So he also intervened in favor of uh, this charity. But as all this happened from 1943 onwards, it was, of course, uh, seen as to have been, well, uh, opportunistic, uh, tactical maneuvering by uh, Borthat in order to, well, to, to save his, uh, his skin, of course, from uh, Belgian uh, justice uh, after the war, which, of course, was what, what happened. Its brewery a stone's throw from Fort Braindonk, and its original creator imprisoned for collaboration with the Nazis, Duvel's past is a cautionary reminder of some of Belgium's darkest days, history that remains contested even today in certain sections of Flemish society. generation of the Murtgaard family to run the brewery, so Victor's sons Emile and Leon, with some assistance later from Albert's sons Marcel and Bert, presided over growth and prosperity in the post-war years. To their existing Bell and Vedette lagers, they added the Marissou brand of Abbey Style Ales after securing a licence from the Marissou Abbey in 1963. And they landed a lucrative bottling and distribution contract with Danish beer giant Tuborg allowing them to sell their beers into new markets where Tuborg already had a hold. However, it was in the 1960s and early 1970s that saw the emergence of the beer that would become the iconic Duvel we know today. Emile Morgat worked closely with Professor Jean de Clerc, one of the brewing world's most influential scientists and scholars. Brussels-born de Klerk founded the European Brewing Convention. He wrote a famous two-volume work called Textbook for Brewing. And he assisted the monks at the Abbey of Notre-Dame de Scourmont to create the famous Belgian dark strong trappistale Chimay Bleu. De Klerk was the best in his field, basically, and you know that's why the Borgats hired him. In the 1960s, de Klerk worked to isolate strains from Duval's original Scottish yeast to deliver a cleaner, purer beer. He is also thought to be responsible for lightening the colour so it became blonde at a time when paler beers were becoming more and more in demand in Belgium. This was also the period that the brewery introduced the now iconic Duval glass. You know, its, its voluptuous ballon was one of the first tulips to appear in Belgium sharing functional and aesthetic elements with the burgundy wine sampling glass. It was also the era of Duvel's first commercial forays outside of Belgium. The beer's fascinating evolution and the subsequent success of this re-engineered Duvel came to define a whole new style, Belgian golden strong ale. Before Duvel, there was no such thing as Belgian golden strong ale. If Emile Borgat and de Klerk 
were responsible for putting Duval on a new path, then it was the fourth generation of the Morgats, in particular current CEO Michel Morgat and his production team, who have been responsible for cementing Duval's reputation as a true icon of Belgian beer. So maybe we should ask the people who make it how they did that and find out exactly how this beer is produced differently to others. Part 2. The devil is in the details. Hello, Brendan. Hey, Dimitri, can you hear me? That's better. Yes, yes, perfect. And great, Sam is there, so that's okay. perfect. So uh, before we get into the details, he'll be there. So that's great. So what I will do, I will put my, I will put my uh, my phone on the table then. Yeah. Okay. okay. Good. Yeah. Okay. Great. <laughs> hey, Sam. Hello. Nice to meet you. So these are two of Duval Morgat's senior production staff. The first voice you heard is Dimitri Stalins. He's the quality director of Duval Morgat. And the second voice is Sam de Balder. He's the site manager at Duval Morgat's brewery plant in Braindonk, where they produce Duval. The production of Duval involves a whole range of complex processes. But to my mind, there are three differentiating characteristics in its construction, which have most contributed to its iconic status. The first is the fact that it is extremely pale for a high ABV ale. The second is its fermentation profile, both in performance and in flavour. And the third is its very high carbonation. So I wanted to talk about all of that with Dimitri and Sam. So first uh, first thing is, um, yeah, the ingredients. So I'm, I'm pretty sure that the beer is made with one malt, Pilsner malt, and like a simple sugar, like dextrose or, or glucose or something. Yes. So we looked together this, this, we, I surfed a little bit on the internet and just if you type in Duval or Duval recipe or Duval clone, I think everybody who types it on the internet already gets a lot of information on how it should be, how it is made and indeed uh, Duval is in, in many aspects a very simple beer and in many other things it's a very complicated beer. So indeed the raw materials bill is of course it's it's Pilsner malt and some dextrose to, uh, to on one hand keep the color low, but on, on the other hand also to keep the drinkability high. And I think everybody who de- who's busy with beer knows that more or less. Eh? Yeah, uh, sure. And you have you know you have a thinner body and a higher ABV, which you say like it, it contributes to to drinkability. Um, yes. Like in terms of proportions, there, you know, are we talking like a, a very small amount of sugar or? closer to, you know, like a half-half split or a 60-40 split or... What, what I always say is like everybody who has a decent Anton par or who spends a little bit money on calculate, on analyzing the attenuation degree will probably be smart enough to figure it out. But in order to make a heavy beer, it's not like a, a small portion. I think everybody knows that, yeah. And w- one of the things that Sven said was that you source some of your... 
uh, ingredients. So I presume also malts from like several different suppliers so that, you know, if there's an issue with one, you know, you can maintain the integrity of the, you know, of, of the recipe and of, of the production. Yeah, we always, uh, like you said, we have different suppliers and we try to make a homogeneous batch of different uh, of, of the same mold type of different suppliers, so you can always balance that out okay, yeah, in yeah. case there are issues. Yeah, yeah. With risk management, uh, and also you're more sure that uh, if you have more suppliers, that we always will have uh, uh, enough mold of decent quality for Duvel. Because as you know, we have uh, more beers that we brew, and then in this way, we're always sure to have uh, enough mold of excellent quality for Duvel. Yeah, I mean, it's as one of the most important brands for the company, it's it's really important that, like you say, you manage that risk and you can, you know, plan any, any issues in the future. Um, so then on an ingredient... Of, course all, the, of course, all the quality specs are also determined before, and it's not just a bunch of malt coming in. They all have to be within spec, check called with our quality control, and from there on, you have those homogeneous batches. So it's not just a bunch of malt coming in. No, it's all quality controlled malt. Of different suppliers. So, do you have like conversations with Dingemans and you know the other big malt suppliers? It's like, hey, this is our Duval Pills malt, and we need these facts in terms of like moisture and color and all those types. Absolutely, of absolutely. I think uh, from a quality point of view, I think my meetings with the maltsters are one of the most most important meetings. I think uh, these are the suppliers which I have, I think, the most interaction with as a, as a quality responsible. And we don't, we, we are very severe on some specifications and on other specifications we give them a little bit leeway in order to meet those very, these few very strict specifications that we want. Because as you know, malt is a living product and if you have 20 specs and they all are very strict and very narrow, and you will have like two kilograms of Pilsner malt to brew with. So, uh, you, 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 of course, we have a long list of specifications. We have some very non-negotiable ones, and the other ones we we, we agree on with the with the different malsters so that they are able to find uh, the good barley and they can produce the, the nice malt for us. Um. Okay, so so I think that it's kind of pretty well known, and you guys have you know explained that in in your marketing for the beer that it's uh, the hops are salsas and Styrian Golings, and so sort of aromatic varieties that are used um, to kind of give the beer, I think, uh, well the, the the flavor profile that you want, but also I think an IBU level of around thirty two, and yes. um, so like a, a good sort of firm bitterness, but not over the top. Um, well done. Are those? That's, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. No, no. That's indeed like Sam says. It's the it's the target EBUs is the beginning of the 30s, 32, 33, something like that. And our main hops, and everybody knows, it's everywhere uh, docu well documented that we rely on South South and Syrian Golden. And one of one of the things that you know you also mentioned to me before was the thermal load minimizing. So you know, Duval is obviously a very pale beer, so it's got that. Um, I think it's six EBC in color, somewhere like that. Yes, six and uh, sometimes lower, but uh, six EBC I would say is like an average throughout yeah. the year. Yes. Now that obviously wasn't always the case. So, so when the processes to try to minimize thermal load during brewing kind of come in and start to work their way through every part of the process? 
Um, I will, I'll let Dimitri finish off my uh, answer. Um, I arrived here at the brewery in 2013 and we placed the new brew house in 2007. A new brew house with focus on that low thermal load. So there were lots of studies regarding thermal load in the brew house. And one of them is the, you have water ton, you have the wort kettle. But the exact details of those studies, Dimitri Stalins uh, will know obviously more. But the focus of that brew house was low thermal load for our duvel. So, so, so like Sam says, um, I think uh, it was, I, I joined Tuvalon in 2008 and the brew house was commissioned at the end of 2007. So that was even before my time. But what I know from the whole project is that I think uh, in total there were two PhDs um, executed at the KU Leuven um, in order to look at the effects of thermal loads on Google and on, on beer and on work and everything and beer aging especially. Um, and all those findings were really integrated into the, the design, into the concept of the new brew house. And so when I guide brewers around, around I show them a few examples um, which are visible, but a lot of things, of course, in, a, in brew houses or, or Brewing equipments uh, and brewing installations are, yeah, it's all hidden behind stainless steel and, 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 and in, uh, in tanks and everywhere. But as, as, as you, as Sven mentioned on the, on the, on the, on the podcast and, and, and as we confirm here, it's like the aim is to work. I always say when people visit the Duvel, you won't find like a door, um, Forbidden entrance, secret of Duvel behind his door. Um, the secret of Duvel is in mastering a lot of little details throughout the process, on minimizing thermal loads, on minimizing oxygen, of course, because oxidation also uh, darkens the beer. Um, so they say sometimes devil is in the details, but it is like that. We have like a, a lot of different points throughout the process which indeed aim at reducing thermal load, reducing oxidation, and as a result you get a very pale beer for its uh, OG. Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons that other brewers will find it very difficult to produce something like Duvel because it's not, like you said, there's no magic door, there's no one thing that you can do. It's like, it's a bunch of highly qualified people who care about what they're doing, like working at it for years and years, you know? Yes. So like, it, is, it, is it kind of, you know, at this point we have the beer resting for a period of time. We need to make sure it rests for the time that it needs at this stage, but not a second more. Um, I'm aware as well that you, I think you showed me the last time you had the Steinacker, the, the Shakespeare technology. Yes. In, in, yeah. the, in the Mastron, I think. So can you explain, explain what that is a little bit? Yeah, for instance, that's one of the visible things that I show when I guide in the, in the brew house. I don't know if Sam wants to come talk about the Shakespeare uh, technology. Typical our Steinecker brew house is a, is a brew house, typical uh, 2006, 7, 8 design. And at that time, uh, Steinecker was, um, amongst others, uh, promoting uh, an innovation they put on the market, which was called Shakespeare. And it, and you know, if you look into our mash tun, the two mash tuns, you see, like, I believe the right English word is dimpled surface. Mm -hmm. Like, not a, a flat surface, but it's dimpled. 
And the, 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 the purpose of that dimple surface is that while your agitator is turning in your mesh tun, you get all like little vortexes on the surface. And all those little vortexes uh, at the surface, um, of course, at the other side of the surface, there's steam. On the inside, there's a mesh. And all those little vortexes um, help the heat transfer uh, from the steam into the mesh. And so, hence, we can heat up faster our brew than other breweries can. And in, in literature, you always have that one degree per minute heat rise. We can almost rise at the double. Um, and also, with those little vortexes, you have less, I would say, how do you call it, like caramelization, overheating at the surface. So, that is already one of the little... Uh, things that help to decrease a little bit the color up, pick up in the brew house, and that's one that's one of the few, the few visible ones in our brew house. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so then you have um, you don't have a whirlpool actually at Duval, but you do use centrifuge um, before going bring the wort to your your fermenters, right? Yes. Yes. Um, and I think Sven was kind of given some very basic information on. You know, you cool the wort to, I think, 20 degrees, and then you have, like, a free rise to 26 in primary fermentation. Maybe I'll first come back to the centrifuges. Uh, yeah. I think for the moment we have here uh, at the brewery the biggest wort centrifuges in the world. So, wow. uh, and two of them. So we can cool in parallel, which reduces the wort cooling time a lot, and hence again the, the color pickup at the end of the process. And indeed, um, I think the, 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 the temperature, the temperature um, profile you described is about right. Um, we certainly don't want to, want to, um, to go through too high. I think everybody who's, who's busy with ale fermentations will confirm that go, going to a too high temperature is not, is not, uh, not desirable. If you want to make a drinkable, highly drinkable um, beer like Duvel. So, indeed, if uh, you hear like something 20 to 26, I would say that's about right. Uh, one of the interesting things that he said as well was something called Delta T, which is effectively the, the, the cooling mechanism to, um, you know, stop, the, stop the, the kind of the rise of fermentation temperature is um, so that the water ha has a temperature difference that is no greater than around 10 degrees to the temperature of what's in the tank. And, of, of course, the, I think the, the thinking behind that is that you don't want to stress the yeast. And I think that that's not something that is done by a lot of breweries because most are, are, are you know, stopping that with the same cooling water they're using at, like, glycol or zero degrees temperature, which is obviously very different to, to what Stan was explaining. So can you, can you tell me a little bit more about that process? Yes. So like you said, we start out around that 20 degrees Celsius, our fermentation. And there's actually a jacket around the CCT, which you can... Um, um, it's filled with glycol, and you can, you can uh, programmatically steer the temperature of your glycol. So let's say um, you start out with 20 degrees and you want to let it rise to 26 degrees. Our Duval yeast strain is a very explosive um, yeast strain. It can, be, it can lead to explosive fermentations, as in rapid, not as in dangerous. Um, 
And we actually want our fermentation to go, we set it in the program in each recipe, we set it in a, it's allowed to linearly increase towards that 26 degrees. So we always have a certain amount of glycol. For example, we want, with our experience, this is an example. We know that by putting a delta of 10, which means your glycol in your jacket would be 10 degrees lower than the temperature that your fermentation is at, to let it linearly rise to that 26, to indeed, like you say, control that stress level on the yeast, um, and not let it also ferment in a too rapid time because uh, it will give a different flavor and aroma profile. Um, okay, so then, um, I mean, I think in terms of like the specs, you can, I can probably, you know, type those into an ABV calculator to find out your original gravity and your finishing gravity. I think you're going to finish around 1.2, 1.5 plateau, which means Something you'll prob probably start around like 16.8 or 9. I think you're uh, quite close, Brendan. Congratulations. Um, and then you're, you're, you're conditioning then, you know, another, I think another differentiator of Duval is the long conditioning time. So you have um, cold crash, I guess, for like two weeks, uh, two to three weeks, two degrees, something like that, or yes. minus two yes. degrees. Um, and then you have like a, sorry, go ahead, Sam. No, no, uh, you're, <laughs> it seems like you've been working with us for five years. No, I uh, just, I, I'm trying to read as much source material as I can and speak to as many people. And um, I, I kind of want to get as well to the, the reasoning behind some of this. So, so you have your cold conditioning, you have a, a, like a, a, a filtration or you centrifuge again then, I guess, to clear the beer. Yeah, yeah. And then your, your re-fermentation, which is in a warm room for, for, I don't know, three, four weeks, two weeks. Three. And then your longer cold conditioning. Now, yes. obviously, maybe you're going to say the reasoning is so you have dropout in the bottle and, you know, maybe maturation of flavors, but there's definitely a way you could, or is there a way that you could produce Duval quicker? No, I'm afraid it's not. Oh, at least we don't believe that we don't. Yeah, there are ways. Um, but um, there probably are ways, but I, we are convinced that you will never get the same results. Um, it, it's not that it's like a marketing thing to talk oh, about 90 days or that it's a tradition thing that you've done it this way, so you'll continue to do it. Like the production team are convinced that, you know, Duval is a different beer if we don't do it this way. I, I think so. Um, I'm, I'm quite convinced, uh, for instance, if you look at the, the long fermentation and lagering time we have in combination with, yeah, I would say many other details that we have in, in, in that phase of the process, for instance, allow us to, to use uh, no, no, uh, no, um, how do you call it, stabilization agents. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Re-fermentation, of course, for Duvel, it's, uh, it's very important. Um, to reach the high saturation in the bottle, which is of course one of the hallmarks, like uh, like uh, Sven described also, and then we certainly believe in the in the um, the advantage of the, the cold rooms afterwards. So, mm -hmm. you know, everybody who's practicing a refermented beers will find probably that this beer gets a little bit better until it peaks and then it goes down, and by keeping us beer for several weeks in the cold rooms. I'm sure that even the first bottle of Duvel which leaves the brewery is already of very, 
very good quality and doesn't disappoint our uh, consumers who drink beautiful every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, let's talk about carbonation just for a second. So, uh, you know, it's one of the characteristics I think of Duval is its high carbonation level. Um, you guys are targeting around 8.5 grams per litre CO2. Yes. Uh, there's a difference, I guess, in what has happened in the past to what's happened say, in the last 5, 10 years. You had, historically, I think, a little bit more yeast sediment in the bottle. Now you have less. I mean, disagree with me if, if, if I'm... No, no. I, I would say that certainly, um, I would say Duvo, Hedwig, our, 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 our CTO or technical director, you know, we, 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 nev- we never stop working at Duvo slash improving on Duvo. It's never a finished product. Um, I think everybody, every brewer knows that the disadvantages of having too much yeast in the bottle um, because uh, upon aging in the bottle, it only leads to autolysis flavors, to worse foam. So it's really important to have the right amount of yeast in the bottle to have a good re-fermentation, but not more. But I would say also part of the sediment probably was also some uh, colloidal instability in the past. Yeah, so actually the improvements in the, in the hot side part of the, the process have also minimize the yeast sediment in the bottle in the end, actually, as well. The sediment as a whole, yes. Um, I mean, to to achieve that high carbonation level, I mean, you're not pitching yeast and sugar from from a a lower... You have to be forced carbon to a certain level and then topping up, right? Well, um, do you want to answer that, Thompson? We always carbonate a little bit beforehand um, to have like uh, five grams per liter in the bottle, something like that, because a lot of uh, a mistake that some brewers make is that, oh, we're re-fermenting, so um, headspace in the bottle, air headspace in the bottle is not an issue. So, but by, first of all, you have stratification of CO2 in big fermenters. You have more CO2 in the bottom than up. So you need to flatten it out anyway, and by force carbonating a bit until 5 grams, for instance, we are also able to, during filling, to have some over-foaming before capping it on the bottle, so that all the air in the headspace is already expelled. Mm -hmm. So you start off already with low oxygen levels. Um, I know many brewers who do re-fermentation, but start from flat beer, that the air in the headspace is still present when the re-fermentation yeast is already dead. And then you see that these beers sometimes age faster. So by force carbonating until 5 grams, which is like a very low carbonation, um, we re- we're able to, to eliminate the stratification in the big CCTs on one hand and to be able to overfoam to have a better shelf life. And so then from 5 till uh, 8.5, at least uh, we add uh, sugar for refermentation. So this means like uh, easily 0708 platos of sugar. I think in international beer, and especially, you know, in kind of modern beer, inverted commas, where you have a lot of style categorizations, and people try to put things in boxes. And Duval is actually something that 
in a way, created its own style. So I think it's it's referred to in BJCP as Belgian Golden Strong Ale. Yes. Which, I don't know, in my mind, is kind of, that is halfway between like a a triple and a pilsner. That, I don't know if that makes sense. You know, it's got the kind of the, the, some yeast character and the ABV and, and kind of maltiness of, of a triple, but it's got this kind of dry, you know, drinkability of, of a pilsner. Um, I mean, you guys are producing this beer. I mean, what's your view on? I mean, you're not going to um, name other beers in Belgium, like which are in the same category, probably. But like, do you think you know there there are other breweries that try to produce a beer which is similar to Duval because it has been so successful? And like, what is your as the people making it every day? What is your what are your thoughts about that? Of course, we taste our 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 competitors seems like a little bit too 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 strong. Um, I think uh, everybody nowadays uh, has also every I would say bigger brewery in Belgium now has his version of a strong uh, strong golden ale in his portfolio. Uh, Michel Murgat always says like when there's a, a new a new beer launched in the same category, he always says, like, this means that the category of uh, Strong Golden Ale is still very alive and that it's interesting for all brewers to be there and that we always think, like, yeah, it's uh, somewhat, uh, how do you call it? Uh, and uh, I forgot the English words. Is it like, like flattery? Yes, a little bit, a little bit. That You see everybody trying and uh, there are some... I would say what I like is that some of them, they gave their own touch to their version. I would say like if it's just a simple um, trial to copy and paste, I would say, and sometimes they, they are worse off. I think there are some versions on the market which give a little twist. And for me, these are the most interesting ones. But to be honest, until now, there have been many attempts in the past, and still nowadays, and there's still no one has succeeded in really copying it, whether it was not the aim or whether they tried but they failed. I'll let you go, just need some time. At your own pace, you need to find your way. The transition from the third to the fourth generation of the Morcat family in the 1990s to Michel Morcat and his brothers Bernard and Philippe was not a particularly smooth one. There were sudden deaths in the family which precipitated a change. Losing your father and your uncle within a year of each other when you're in your 20s after having already lost your mother when you were a kid, you know, I can only imagine how difficult that was. Parts of the family in ownership at the time tried to sell their shares to Heineken. And Michel Morgat and his brothers had a different vision and wanted to continue. You know, a restructuring involved taking on debt. And at the time, the company was heavily reliant on one beer, Duval, in one small market, Belgium. Now, the experience of the Mortgat brothers here is not unique in Belgium. 
It's representative of the difficult relationships that take place across generations of the same family in these types of breweries. In this way, Duval the Beer stands as an icon of the complex heritage of family brewing in Belgium. But Michel Morcat was about to change the game. Not only would he consolidate Duval's reputation as an iconic beer, but under his watch, Duval Morcat the brewery would become an iconic company. Now what's the vibe? Is it party time? Wanna move my feet? Wanna drink my wine? Feeling the vibe? We are so alert. Is it me and you now? Let me smoke that vibe. Part three, diversification. Think about me one more time before you go. For far too long And now you're gone When the fourth generation of the Murtgaard family Brothers Michel, Bernard and Philippe Took over in the 1990s Business turnover of Duval Murtgaard Was in the region of 30 million euro Fast forward 30 years, and the most recently available figures for the 2019 financial year show that Duval Murcat recorded a consolidated turnover of 501 million euro, employing over 2,000 people and brewing 2.2 million hectolitres of beer in the process. Duval is now exported to over 50 countries around the world. Much of this growth is based on the diversification of their beer portfolio, including the purchase of a clutch of other breweries. So in Belgium, you've got Aschuf, Liefmans and De Koning. In the Netherlands, Brauriet A. In Italy, they took a 35% stake in Benificio del Ducato. In Czechia, they took 50% stake in Bernard. They've even invested in a kombucha brand in London. And then there's the States, of course, Omachang, Boulevard and Firestone Walker. But despite this growth, they seem to have maintained, at least in Brendonk, the short chain of command and open-door policies of a Belgian family brewery which allow for flexibility and for fast decision-making in response to changing trends. In a way, Michel Morgat's diversification, in essence turning away from a reliance on Duval as their most famous product, has led to Duval becoming even more iconic. Because of Duval Murcat's richer and more wide-reaching portfolio, Duval is now known by more people around the world than ever, penetrating markets they couldn't before. And as the Duval Murcat stable of brands grows, the Duval brewers have been able to take on board know-how from highly qualified brewers in other countries and from different types of facilities. And the financial success of Duval Morcat's other brands have allowed Michel Morcat to invest more heavily in assuring Duval's technical quality, perpetuating its status as an icon of Belgian beer. 
Now, it's not all plain sailing. Icons inspire, and Duval Mordecai have watched as others have tried to emulate their success. Other Belgian golden strong ales have been around for decades, uh, such as Delirium Tremens from Bidawari Hauha, uh, that appeared in 1988. Uh, you have Sluber from Roman, appeared in 83. Satan Gold from De Bloc in 86. And Hapken, which was originally from uh, Lubache, but is uh, now produced by Alkin Mass since 2002. And then more recent competitors include Omer Traditional Blonde from Van der Hinste and uh, Kaiser Karel Omachang from uh, Hacht. Those are 2008 and 2012. In 2020 then, Ebi Inbev released a Belgian golden strong ale called Victoria, also 8.5% ABV. Now that name is of course reminiscent of Duval's original name, Victory Ale. And the label of Inbev's Victoria shows an angel holding the devil down to the ground. Uh, a kind of a visual that Inbev says comes from the story of Archangel St. Michael's triumph over the devil. And then 2015, just after Van Honsebroek released Filou, their new Belgian golden strong ale of 8.5% ABV, that was packaged in the same steiny bottles used by Duvel Morcat and with similar red lettering on a white label. Duvel Morcat introduced a claim against Van Honsebroek in the commercial court of Brussels. They argued that Filou was free riding on the look and feel of Duvel and they demanded that production and advertising of Filou should cease. Now the court eventually rejected all of Duvel Morcat's claims, concluding that the average consumer would be able to easily tell the two beers apart. You know, perhaps the court felt Duvel was too iconic to be confused with another beer. And then international expansion has also brought with it its own controversies. Earlier this year, one of Duval Morcat's American breweries, Boulevard Brewing Company of Kansas City, Missouri, were the subject of allegations of sexual harassment and discrimination. A number of Boulevard senior staff have resigned. Feedback on social media has been vitriolic and employees are thought to be considering a mass walkout to protest. Duval Morcat's rapid growth and phenomenal success has meant they are now accountable for a lot of people. Ambition and diversification can present as many challenges as it does opportunities. Icon is a representative symbol of something, a person or thing worthy of veneration. It's a term often overused, but not in the case of Duval. 
The beer has been responsible for spawning a whole new style of beer, the Belgian Golden Strong Ale, and is revered for its extremely pale colour, its fermentation flavours and its dryness, its carbonation, its balance and its drinkability. It's also iconic because its origin story symbolises Belgium's rich brewing heritage and hints at the beer culture Belgium has shared for decades with other countries like the UK and Germany. The characters of the beer's past and the place of its production provide a reminder of the horrors inflicted on Belgium by war, but also celebrate the advanced technical ability of the country's brewers and scientists. It's an example of the internal tensions that a family dynamic can place on Belgian breweries, as well as the strengths of such longevity. Its commercial success has allowed its producer to grow and diversify, in turn ensuring continued investment in its quality. And it has inspired a wave of new beers in its mould, both at home and around the world. In some cases, leading to conflict with others, as well as in some instances, undesirable human consequences. There's a Duval advert from 2016, which was shot like a short film and became quite well known here in Belgium. A man arrives in his car and buzzes into a warehouse in the dead of night. Leather jacketed and with his guitar strung over his shoulder, we see it is well-known Belgian musician Jan Paternoster walking through a modern brew house. He nods to brewers on the night shift and a sample of golden beer is pulled from a tank as he passes. He then uses a security pass with a red gothic D to swipe through a door. It's the instantly recognisable branding of Duval Morcat. Paternoster descends down a red neon staircase into the Reipingskalder. This isn't his first time here. In the maturation cellar he finds another popular Belgian musician, Daniel Dan Steuven, playing music. The pair share a few words. They're almost ready, says Dan. Let's try and shake them up, replies Paternoster, before a changing of the guard. So Paternoster plugs his electric guitar into speakers and he blasts out a rock solo riff as the camera pans up to his audience. 90 backlit display rows containing thousands of brown steiny bottles of Duval rattling along to the music. The advert told viewers that Duval is a beer that receives the utmost care and attention. And it told us that production of Duval takes 90 days, longer than virtually all other top fermented beers made in Belgium. The song that both those musicians are playing to the bottles in the advert, it's a reworked version of one of Dan's tracks. title of the song Icon 
thanks to Mike Kearney and Dave Wallace for the writing and recording of original music and to Visit Flanders for their support in producing this podcast. And thanks to you for downloading and listening. As always, it would be great if you shared the podcast with others who might enjoy it. And if you haven't done so already, please like, uh, subscribe and review. It's really appreciated. My name is Brendan Kearney. This has been the Belgian Smack Podcast. Until next time, love what you do. My fist is rolled up tight and now I'm